Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome John Glasspool, CEO and president of Anthos Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Hey, Raul. Thanks for the invitation. I love the focus of Biotech 2050. I think disruption's natural to our industry, and it's great to see you taking a lead on that. Thank, Thank you, John. Thanks for the invitation. So, John, to start off and to set the stage for the rest of the conversation, we'd love to learn a bit about your background and the arc of your career. Sure. Thanks, Raul. I'll try not to bore people. The arc of my career is the following. I started out in a venture capital-funded company founded by David Horobin, University of Montreal. And so I started with one of the world's smallest companies and then moved to Johnson & Johnson. So I did the two extremes back to back. At j and I essentially worked in every commercial role I could and ended up working in, in New Brunswick in the headquarters. I went off to do a US launch. I'm originally from the UK, did a US launch. I then went to Novartis in Switzerland and did various roles heading up cardiovascular metabolism, neuroscience, and region Europe. I moved then to Baxter in Chicago as head of corporate development. From Baxter, we did a spin-out. I was on the leadership team that spun out Baxalter, rapidly acquired by Shire, which was good for the shareholders and sad for the management team. And today, I'm the CEO and president, as you say, of Anthos Therapeutics. So that's my whole career in, in a thumbnail for you, Raul. Great, John. And I'm curious to hear from you the impact that your experience in Big Pharma had on your current leadership style and perhaps what skill sets and, and learnings did translate to running Anthos? That's a really, really great question. I think what things did I take from, if you will, Big Pharma into Anthos? I think the most important one is the starting point of everything that we do is what are we trying to do for patients? And then how does the mechanism relate to what those patients need? That was the most important thing I think that I took away. I worked for Dan Vassello, whose very first question in any meeting was the patient and why we thought we could change the trajectory for those patients. And that was a great learning. I think the second thing I took was the sort of drive for quality. And Big Pharma has a important and remarkable focus on the quality of execution. And that was another key factor I took away. The third is what makes a difference in any pharma company, having worked for a few larger ones, is the passion and the drive of the people that are around you. That's what drives success. And I took those learnings into Anthos along with the things that I wanted to change from Big Pharma. So the incentive structure, making sure the whole company is aligned to one incentive structure, which is around innovation and speed, that same quality aspect from Big Pharma, that same focus on the patient and the same wraparound of it's the team that makes the difference. And John, given your global experience across biotech and big pharma, I'm curious if, if you've had a chance to reflect on what were some of the surprising dissimilarities between, let's say, European biotech and working in Europe versus the US? Yeah, so I've been very fortunate. I've lived in five countries and I've had business trips to 34. The only reason I know that is, of course, for my US visa application, that you have to prove all those places that you've worked. You know, I think the biggest difference between the US and Europe is the different weightings around the core customers. And so what I believe in is that, you know, there are essentially customers are, are against five Ps, 
which is that's patients, that's professionals, be that physicians, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, nurses. It's about providers and the hospital system. It's about payers. And then it's about the regulators, the policymakers. And I think in general, both sides of the Atlantic think about all five. I think the weighting is somewhat different. I think Europe is very focused on the patient and the payer. On the US, that weighting falls more to the patient and the professional and the provider. And it's really around the incentive systems in the two geographies. And that's the key difference. Of course, many of the companies I've worked for are global companies, but you still see that sense of difference as to where the weight is on how they think you know, a drug needs to be developed and who will make a decision about how it's used. Yeah, very interesting perspective, John. And before we jump into the work that you're doing now, I'm curious as with a commercial background and now running an early clinical stage, privately held biotech, what advice would you provide folks that have a similar background to you as it relates to them running your own biotech? My advice, and you know, this advice is to everyone that I think is in the industry, is to think about optimizing a drug development horizontally versus vertically. I'll explain that rule. My thinking is the way you optimize a drug is to start off with the patient that needs it, the traction of the biology, and what is the whole value chain that executes that horizontally. And I think small biotechs are really perfectly geared up to execute that horizontal model and horizontal thinking. The larger the company gets, and this is just you know a factor of scale, the company starts to optimize verticals. Their strength is in research. Their strength is in translational medicine. They strengthen the manufacturing group. They start to think about drugs in this sort of more vertical process, which means people tend to be really deep in their particular vertical, be that commercial, be that research, be that translational medicine. And they're thinking about how do I optimize this part of the drug, but they don't, they think less in that setting about what does it need to do horizontally to go from the test tube to make sure there's really great patient access. And so my advice for everybody, whether you're in commercial or in development, is really think through that horizontal process and understand the linkages between those verticals and and learn to optimize that. If your ultimate goal is to make sure that you change the practice of medicine, get your drug used, and you treat people more effectively. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful advice, John. I couldn't agree more. So you and your team are now working on cardiovascular diseases. And before we jump into the work at Anthos, be really helpful if you could set the stage in terms of the current cardiovascular landscape, challenges and opportunities that you see when working in that therapeutic area. Yeah, thanks for the question, Raul. And you know, this is where there's an advantage to be an old dog in our industry. You know, I was around when people really weren't certain of the value, for example, of lipid lowering. You know, we questioned, you know, what was the relative importance of various interventions, but cardiovascular disease was the big behemoth in the industry you know, on the lipid front, on the blood pressure front, on the diabetes front, really seeking to change the standard of care and improve outcomes. And clearly, all of those medicines have done that. And Big Pharma was deeply invested in cardiovascular medicine. We talked earlier about the fact that, you know, obviously there are different players in the industry. And and one thing that came to the fore during that period was the payer and the payer's view of the relative value versus a standard of care. And that sort of put a lot of pressure on the cardiovascular space where people started to question how much more can we improve in that space? 
and people started to migrate to more rare diseases, more novel diseases, driven one by the availability of new science, new technologies, new targets, but also driven away by the fact they felt it was too difficult to get drugs reimbursed. And so we're in a situation today where much of the cardiovascular unmet need remains. It still remains the largest killer, for example, in the United States, but there's much less research. The research that is being undertaken is predominantly in, in rarer cardiovascular diseases, and which is really surprising to me, given that, that level of unmet need. So we're in an area where we know the unmet need is huge. We know there are new ways that we can intervene, but a lot of that innovation is taking place in smaller companies as Big Pharma became more nervous of the, of the reimbursement space for these more primary care indications, if you will. And when we say primary care, they're you know, mass diseases that many, many people suffer from. That was the challenge. That's the industry as it sits today, I think. And why do you think the majority of capital and innovation in, at least at early stage biotechs, is on rare diseases right now versus what you just talked about? You know, I, again, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's multiple issues. I think one is, of course, the regulatory incentives that we'll put in place. Two, I think it was the amount of capital you need to deploy until you get a meaningful outcome. And three, there's you know, the ability for smaller companies to be able to commercialize those indications, make them increasingly attractive to the capital investors due to those other two points. Good regulatory incentives, low capital deployment before you get a, a meaningful clinical readout. And thirdly, the ability increasingly that you can self-commercialize those and capture more value. That's my own assessment, Raoul. Great. Thanks, Sean. Okay. Now let's talk about Anthos and the exciting work that you all are pursuing there. Yeah. So thanks for that. Of course, I'm highly biased, but I think Anthos <laughs> is inc incredibly exciting. And let me explain why I think it's exciting to begin with. Back to unmet need, You know, Anthos is working for the protection of people from thrombosis and thrombosis kills around one in four Americans. So I think everyone agrees that thrombosis is a, a really important unmet need. Much of the disease area, though, people think, well, there are newer products in the market. It's the largest market by volume. There's drugs with you know, $25 billion turnover. How much unmet need can there really be? And, and what you realize when you peel back the onion in any disease area, but especially in an area like thrombosis, is 30 to 40% of people that should be treated are not treated, and that many of those people are treated are undertreated. And that's why that one in four death rate remains in that the disease area is sort of hidden from view by the size of the dollars that are spent on the disease. What we believe at Anthos is that the challenge with the current market is all the drugs that protect you also increase your risk of bleeding. And it's that balance between the physician walking a tightrope of, I want to protect my patient from a thrombus, but equally, I don't want to cause harm and increase bleeding making it very, very difficult both for clinicians and the patients and their loved ones, for that matter, to think about, do, should I get treated? How should I get treated? Do I want to adhere to this therapy? At Anthos, we're working on a new class of medications, Factor 11, where we believe Factor 11 can protect you from a thrombus, but not interfere with your hemostatic system the way that the current agents do. And so we believe we're developing what we call the first hemostasis sparing anticoagulant, because we believe that factor 11 can be uncoupled from the hemostatic system. And that's really, really exciting to us because we think at the end of the day with our data, we'll be able to show that we reduce clots. We've already done that very successfully. For example, in a phase two trial that was in the New England Journal, where we reduced clots to a greater extent than low molecular weight heparin with an 80% reduction. 
But we think as the trials develop, we'll be able to share that clot reduction without increasing the bleeding risk. So leading more people to get treated effectively and less of a burden on that increased bleed rate that you see with the current agents. For me in the industry, and we talked about big pharma and small biotech, I think it's great that people can get drugs registered. What's really important to us at Anthos is that we can register a drug that we think will change the practice in medicine, in particular, get more people treated. Great, John. And talk to us a little bit about the size of the team and how you're able to pursue such aggressive timelines from a clinical development perspective, given the size of your team. Yeah, so that's a, you know, let's put, put in context the, the speed to begin with. We've taken the drug that was licensed from Novartis in 2019 into phase three in under three years. So we think that's a pretty rapid speed. We think the quality is high, and I think a New England Journal reflects that quality. Um, how have we done that? We've done that with what we call a hybrid externalized model. So Nevada, you know, Anthos itself is only 12 people, and yet we have huge phase three program comparable to anything that you would see at a big pharma company in, in phase three. We've done that by working with external partners, and we deliberately call them partners rather than outsourcing. Because what we explain to people when we're looking to work together is we need your head and your heart, not just your hands and your feet. And I think when we come to partnerships, we see my own view and experience is two ends of the spectrum. At the big farmer end, they will use many of the same partners that we use at Anthos, but they will replicate that external partner with the same people 60% you know, internally will just duplicate and double check what the external partner is doing. At the other end of the spectrum, very small biotech, similar to ourselves, but without the experience, we'll give it to a third party, but without the people on the team having the experience in that particular field. Our hybrid model is each one of our team is responsible for a core area of development on that historical development, and they have a huge amount of experience in that space. So enabling them to be you know, thought partners with our external partners and helping drive that execution based on their experience. And we think that combination drives speed and quality and engagement from our partners. Right. And John, talk a little bit about how you came to this sort of approach of the hybrid external partnerships and perhaps the pros and cons that folks should consider as they think about that type of model. Yeah, I need to delve back into my past, to be honest with you, in terms of big pharma. And I think, as I shared in my introduction, I've been very much involved in the whole value chain horizontally in various roles, you know, from Johnson Johnson all the way through to Bax Alta. And, you know, obviously the observations of running, you know, franchises in those size of companies, you saw where money was being spent, where you were spending time on internal communications and where you were duplicating what was done with an external partner. So a lot of the observations came from that time. I think the really big eye-opener came to me when we came to reconstruct Baxalter, spinning it out of Baxter. And Rahul, during that period, you really start, when you start with a large company, and yet you're starting from scratch, you start to see really, what do I need to run this efficiently and effectively? And what are things that have been created over the years, just because we've needed them at a given point in time. It was that spin out where I felt when we look at really where we add value and where we have expertise and what does it take to really deliver a drug, that that externalized model really came to the fore for me and made me think if I ever get the opportunity to build an externalized model is much more efficient than I think than, than a vertical model in many, many cases. 
Yeah, and, and certainly your productivity so far in terms of having a late stage clinical asset is a testament to what you just said around if it's done right, it can certainly accelerate your timelines. Yeah, what we talk about there is, you know, we're talking about large pharma quality with biotech agility. And what do we mean by that? When the biotech agility comes from the sort of lack of management layers and the ability to make fast decisions, but by executing it with best in class partners, do you know that you're getting that same big pharma quality? One of the things I reflect on, because people have said to me often, you know, why do we not do this more often? I think a concept that I've developed in my mind is what I call Q3. We all know about IQ. We all know about EQ increasingly is important. The third cue that I've added is essentially collaboration. How comfortable are people collaborating versus how comfortable people are with control? And if you get comfortable with collaboration through your career and you can align on people on objectives and values, and you're very, very comfortable with collaboration, you can really move things forward much more quickly. I think the more that you move to the CQ component of control, then you feel you need things directly next to you, directly reporting to you, directly on your P&L. And I inevitably believe that often leads to a slower way forward. Yeah, I certainly agree, John, that if it's done right, I've found that there's quite a bit of redundancy in the standard outsourcing model. So really interesting approach to externalizing work with trusted partners. You know, I very consciously, when we created Anthos, steered away from the world outsourcing. When I was at Novartis and ran global commercial operations, we built, if you will, an external service center in Hyderabad in India. And I was spending one week a month in in Hyderabad and three weeks a month in Switzerland. And what I realized during that period was we'd called it outsourcing. Obviously, it was an offshore, but they were Novartis staff. These people were just as efficient as anybody in Basel. And thinking those things through, and making sure that they were you know, aligned to the values and the deliverables and the objectives, that model was just as efficient as any model if you had directly reporting to you down the corridor. Yeah. And John, I'd love to hear your thoughts on partnerships as a whole currently, and you were launched through Blackstone. I'd love to hear your perspective, given all that you've seen across the industry in terms of what's changed as it relates to company formation over the last 10 years or so, and then also what you hope happens in the subsequent 10 to 20 years? That's a uh, good forward-looking question. I think what I see is as company portfolios have grown and the street has really driven pharma companies to limit their R&D, I think we see much more company formation taking place out of larger pharma companies. Anthos is an example Obviously, Takeda has also done that. There's many companies now have spun companies outside of the big pharma. On the other side, I think the huge change from my perspective in the industry was democratization of science. So you see a lot of, you know, obviously entrepreneurial startups, licensing of academic science to create companies around depending on the various venture models. I think that has really then driven the external process overall, where you've got Obviously, you know, the CROs are growing, the external statistics companies, the external tox companies, the whole ecosystem is now available to any company through the changes at the two end of the spectrum, really enabling this externalization of drug development. I think where it's going to go in the future is we're going to see more and more of the development ecosystem in individualized specialist companies. And I think the relative contributions from within a vertical will start to reduce you know, more markedly as, as we move forward. 
And John, on the clinical trial innovation side over the next, let's say, two decades or so, any perspective on what you think needs to change or where you think that is headed? This is an area where I have you know, a really big hope. I think I was very fortunate in being trained in clinical trial designs and clinical trials by Lula Sanya, who was a wonderful guy. And probably I learned the most about thinking through individual clinical trials. I think on the slightly sad side, that model that he built of placebo-controlled trials, et cetera, and the execution of that is the same model we live with today, where the clinical trial infrastructure is totally independent within the healthcare structure. It bolts on to hospitals, tertiary centers, et cetera, but it's still an independent apparatus. The way that I see things moving forward, Raul, is that you fully integrate scientific and clinical exploration into the healthcare system. That when you walk into your general practitioner or when you get referred to your tertiary referral center, you don't get a treatment or ask, do you want to go into a clinical trial by luck that you happen to be in a center with that study and that disease with that recruitment criteria, but you automatically know what's available and you, based on the recommendation of your physician, you get a licensed medication or you go into a clinical trial automatically. I think it will remove a lot of the discrepancies in who gets to a trial and who's not. I think it will improve the cost basis. I think it will increase the speed and it will reduce the determinants of social health in terms of the impact that that has on your potential outcome. And so my hope is that we get to a fully integrated system where health includes licensed medications and and clinical trials in exactly the same setting. Yeah, John, it's certainly an inspiring vision. And I hope that we do start to make some progress towards that vision because I I think it would dramatically impact R&D efficiency, as you said. And patient outcomes. And I think for the industry, I think it would really be a huge, a huge, huge step forward to work, to integrate it within healthcare systems, that whole clinical trial apparatus. And, And for patients to know that they're getting the best of what's available, be that the current licensed medication or be that the chance to take part in a groundbreaking clinical trial and less on the likelihood of the postal code and is that particular center that you happen to go at that point in time got a trial available or not. That to me seems incredibly inefficient in today's world. Totally agree with you, John. Well, John, to wrap up here, I'd love to ask you to reflect back and think about what's one piece of advice that you would provide your younger self, knowing what you now know. The piece of advice I would say to my younger self, knowing what I know now is think about horizontal drug development earlier and don't focus so much solely on commercial <laughs> for such a long time. That would be my own that would be my own personal advice. For anybody newly in the industry or thinking where they are in the industry, get exposed to the impact that the science that we do has on patients personally. Do take the time to leave the lab or leave the clinic or leave the office and meet with the patients of the disease that you're trying to treat because it will give you so much energy and so much focus and give you, you know, the real compass of what we all do, which is to improve the patient outcome. But making that as meaningful as possible by getting to know individuals, I think is a really strong way to keep grounded in our industry. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that wonderful advice, John. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for sharing your background with us and, and the awesome work that you're pursuing at Anthos. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.